Hello, everyone, and welcome to this latest episode of the podcast. My name is Richard Bryant, and I am your host. It's May 14th, 2020. This is the Corona Chronicles, Day 63. Hello, everyone. Here is today's top stories. Starting first from The Guardian, an industry in freefall, the dance sector calls for urgent help. With tours canceled and rehearsal rooms closed, what's the future future for dance? Ballerina Lauren Cuthbertson, psychotherapist Terry Hyde, and choreographer Alexander Whitley assess the COVID-19 damage. Lauren Cuthbertson was on her way home after performing in St. Petersburg when an email brought her life to a screeching halt. I was on the Gatwick Express, and I got the email saying there'll be no classes and no rehearsals, says the Royal Ballet Principal Ballerina. It said very clearly, don't come to the theater. That was the moment COVID-19 disrupted Cuthbertson's carefully laid plans and upturned her routine of intense daily practice and character development. As a dancer, you always know the dates for your shows. She says from her new base in the Midlands, I barely know what date it is now. The impact of COVID-19 on dance has been schedules torn up, dates in disarray, practices on hiatus. Freelance dancers who make up the majority in the industry have no work and are looking to the government for support. Theaters and companies had to deal with the fallout from canceled shows, which were often booked 18 months to two years in advance. Those cancellations took with them the funds many were relying on until the next project funding was awarded. Terry Hyde, a former royal ballet dancer turned psychotherapist, says the dance world is a fraught place at the best of times, one where competition and pressure take their toll. Now he has seen a surge in people seeking his services. It's unrelenting pressure, says Hyde. Some of it is the self-doing, and some of it comes through the old-school approach that says you need to work through any pain. Hyde says that traditional performance pressure has been replaced by anxiety about the uncertainty. Now it's all about fear of missing out because they're worried and isolated, says Hyde. Is someone else able to work out more effectively while you're struggling? Are they getting an edge? Cuthbertson, who has a large social media presence, says that as the lockdown measures took effect, she began to find the online world anxiety-inducing. When I went on there, it would make me feel guilty for not doing online classes, she said. That was my moment of finding my feet in quarantine. I took around 10 days off ballet. I had to recalibrate what I was training for. Recalibration is something Alexander Whitley has been doing as well. He was days away from unveiling a production that he had been working on for 18 months when lockdown meant it was canceled. We'd spent a week in the studio preparing for the show, and then it was pulled, says Whitley, referring to Overflow, a new work that was due to premiere at the Lowry in Salford. Overflow's dates at Sadler's Wells have been rescheduled for the autumn, but Whitley estimates his company has lost £100,000 because of coronavirus, a huge amount for an independent dance company of that size. The loss of income for us made it impossible for us to pay anyone for the work we thought we were going to have heading into the autumn, he says. Whitley is waiting to see if he will receive some of the £160 million emergency response package announced by Arts Council England. There has to be really substantial support in place in some way, or the work we do is not going to happen, he says. It's not going to exist. For Elliot Smith, a dancer and choreographer based in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, funding is also the pressing concern. He runs an independent company that performs predominantly in the Northeast and is worried that, as well as the immediate impact COVID-19 has on canceled performances and box office, there will be a secondary financial hit. 
At the moment, applicants for ACE project grants have to demonstrate that a minimum of 10% of the overall budget has been supplied by other sources. Smith says much of his so-called match funding comes from local authorities who are now diverting funding to tackle COVID-19. Some of our grants will not be released because they're going to be used for well-being issues and not the arts, says Smith. What impact will that have us on us when we go to ACE and don't have that much funding? Equity, the union that represents dancers, said the outlook for the ACE sector is bleak, adding that if theater recovery is delayed beyond the beginning of September, which many have predicted, the sector will require additional help to make up for lost income. The industry body, One Dance UK, praised ACE's initial response but told The Guardian it backs the creation of a creative industries distress fund that would be available well into the recovery period. Whether the ultimate responses, Smith, Cuthbertson, and Whitley all believe that dance will not be the same. Smith and Whitley have, been, have both started creative working that has been choreographed specifically for online performances while there have been some unlikely positives for Cuthbertson. She was a cross-country champion at school and is being encouraged to run again, an activity that is usually banned for dancers whose ankles don't need any additional burden. The ballerina is trying to find joy in that, dancing to unorthodox music, mostly Philip Glass and Elton John, and practices with her colleagues held online. You can have an amazing Zoom class, but my Wi-Fi connection isn't great, so I end up missing half of the moves, says Cuthbertson. Doing what you can with the restrictions can be fulfilling, though, she adds. It gets frustrating when you compare it to what you're used to, but that's not the situation we've got now. To visit this article, again, visit theguardian.com. This article was presented by Lanre Bakare. Continuing on, also from our friends at The Guardian, a recent article by Alyssa Blake, titled, We Put on Theater No Matter What, What Will Australian Stages Look Like Post-Pandemic? The nation's major theater companies are tentatively planning around September reopenings, but will audiences be willing? The last thing Lee Lewis imagined when she took over the reins of Queensland Theater at the end of 2019 was steering a company through an unprecedented public health crisis. We know what's happening in the super short term. We know what will happen in the super long term, which is that theater will survive. What we don't know is everything in between, the Brisbane-based artistic director told Guardian Australia. Reeling from the COVID-19 shutdown of all performing arts venues, the theater industry is suspended on the prongs of public health policy, financial viability, job keeper support, and the great unknown, audience confidence. Every theater company in Australia is considering out-of-the-box suggestions to stay afloat and keep audiences safe. Quarantining actors in rehearsals, spacing audiences out in every second row, temperature checks at the door, even keeping the theater doors, theaters closed and performing outdoors instead, in a zany ISO move, QT has just launched Zoom backgrounds of its most loved set designs, including Jasper Jones. Most theaters are hoping to reopen in September, but acknowledge all plans could be scrapped on advice from medical authorities. The worst-case scenario for theaters is not being able to open until there is a vaccine. Next 18 months, Lewis says, is beyond anyone's capacity to imagine. I'm working to save as much of our 2020 season as I can, but I also have to acknowledge that it will be different, a different world when we open again and what people will want to see may be very different too. Our audience is going to be carrying the financial and psychological burden of this pandemic for quite a while. To read the entire article, please visit theguardian.com. The article is entitled, We Put on Theater No Matter What, What Will Australian Stages Look Like Post-Pandemic by Alyssa Blake. 
And finally, another story that you can check out on The Guardian. Zoom with a view, how lockdown art classes are booming online. This story was brought to you by Naja Sayej. Quarantine has led to a rise in those with and without artistic experience heading online for a range of immersive classes. On March 30th, Big Bang Theory star Jim Parsons posted a selfie on Instagram holding up a painting of two vases, which he made himself. In the caption, Parsons told his followers that he created the artwork with the help of an online art class. They're doing live classes via Zoom, and quite to my delight, I was not only able to figure out how to use Zoom, but I also painted this in the process, he wrote. No museums are asking to display my first still-life painting, but I feel just a little bit more peaceful from the process. And I got to see real-life other people who are also taking the class. A real gift right now. Parsons is not alone. Thousands of us have been turning to Zoom, the video conferencing platform, to get a creative workout. From life-drawing art classes to small-town museums, pandemic cartoons, and upcycled sculptures, it seems to be the perfect answer for cooped-up creativity in our current quarantine. Again, if you'd like to read the complete article, please visit theguardian.com. The article is entitled, Zoom with a View, How Lockdown Art Classes Are Booming Online. Page 2. From stagedirections.com, the Actors Fund has distributed over $10 million of financial assistance. The Actors Fund announced today that as of May 13, 2020, it has distributed a record-breaking amount, over $10 million, in just eight weeks to help provide emergency financial assistance for those in need due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. This emergency financial aid is helping the most vulnerable members of the performing arts and entertainment communities, as well as those facing financial hardship by providing assistance for basic living expenses, including essential medications, housing, food, and utilities. For context, in eight weeks, the fund has distributed more than five times the funds normally provided in one year for people in need in the performing arts and entertainment community. Brian Stokes Mitchell, Tony Award winner and chairman of the board of the Actors Fund said, Looking at a number, even one as large as 10 million, doesn't begin to tell the whole story. In an instant, our friends and supporters, people like Rosie O'Donnell, Seth Rudetsky, and James Wesley, and others began dreaming of entirely new fundraising models that would prove to be nothing short of life-saving. In all my years working with the fund, I've never been so moved, so inspired, or so grateful. Joseph Benincasa, president and CEO of the Actors Fund, added, the kind of collaboration and generosity we've seen over the past two months from our entertainment industry union and guild partners, including SAG, AFTRA, Actors' Equity, and the IATSE, as well as thousands of individual donors, has been nothing short of staggering. It is an unbelievable honor to be able to do so much good for so many people. Thanks to the unprecedented level of support we continue to receive. It's also important to note that this is by no means a victory lap. In the coming months, we anticipate helping our entertainment industry colleagues navigate issues such as union health insurance, the new COVID economy, mental health, addiction, and recovery sources, affordable housing, security government resources, and more. The level of need is overwhelming, and our work has only just begun. As the situation with coronavirus continues to evolve, the Actors Fund has transitioned to online and phone-based services, which remain available for everyone in the performing arts and entertainment community. These services include Artist Health Insurance Resource Center, the Career Center, Housing Resources, Addiction and Recovery, 
HIV AIDS and senior services, counseling and emergency financial assistance, as well as the Friedman Health Center for the Performing Arts in New York City. For further information, please visit the Actors Fund at www.actorsfund.org. Again, that's www.actorsfund.org. Continuing on, from our friends at Playbill.com, Playbill teams up with the Pride Plays for multiple live streaming productions throughout June. This was presented by Dan Meyer. Plays from the LGBTQIA community will stream every Friday during Pride Month, culminating in a special concert event. Playbill and Pride Plays have teamed up to present live streams of new and legacy works by LGBTQIA writers throughout June in celebration of Pride Month and in support of Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. Each Friday in June, Playbill will present a live stream theatrical event from the LGBTQIA theatrical canon on its website, as well as features, interviews, and more with the artists. Additional details, including titles and involved artists, will be announced shortly. Pride Plays is produced by Doug Nevin and Michael Yuri, with Nick Mayo serving as festival director, in partnership with Rattlestick Playwrights Theater. Playbill is a beacon of pride every June, says Yuri. I'll miss collecting their rainbow playbills this year, but I'm proud to partner with them to bring some pride-themed content to your screens. The content will be a celebration of love, perseverance, and generosity in the face of adversity, added Nevin. The online festival will culminate in a pride spectacular concert June 28th featuring community performers sharing messages of pride and singing songs old and new. Pride Plays was one of the most exciting theatrical events of 2019 for me, and to be able to bring their 2020 slate to home viewers is a thrilling prospect, said Playbill Editor-in-Chief Mark Pierkert. Art and pride will always find a way. Pride Plays 2019 featured dozens of productions, including works by Terrence McNally, Paula Vogel, Michael Benjamin Washington, and Ryan Spahn. The Pride Plays 2020 Advisory Committee includes Lucy Thurber, Shay Yu, Michael Shepard, Moises Kaufman, Miranda Heyman, Lisa Sheps, Malik Pancholi, Carolyn Prue, Lee Silverman, Sam Hunter, Ted Snowden, MJ Coffin, Justin Makita, Daryl Roth, and Lisa Crone. Switching Gears, a story from our friends at the Theatre Times. Wit and Wisdom, Much Ado About Nothing at the Delacorte Theater. This was posted by Andrew Agress and is a review from New York. In this time of isolation, wouldn't it be nice to take a virtual visit to the park? Fear not. PBS is streaming this past summer's Shakespeare in the production of Much Ado About Nothing. Each summer in New York City, the public theater produces free outdoor performances of Shakespeare plays at the Delacorte Theater. Now, Shakespeare in the Park has become even more accessible. For the first time in over 40 years, PBS is streaming a performance of the New York Festival on its website. It's worth noting that for people looking to watch theater online, PBS has several well-filmed productions on its website under its great performance series. However, Much Ado About Nothing, like the live shows at the Delacorte, is entirely free to watch. Opening in a backyard in Georgia, we're introduced to two cousins, Hero and Beatrice. One sings America the Beautiful, and the other sings Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Two songs shouldn't work together, yet the melodies manage to blend together more often than not. Thus begins Kenny Leon's Much Ado About Nothing, the public theater's 2019 offering of Shakespeare in the Park. 
One of the greatest challenges facing contemporary adaptations of Shakespeare is that the modern-day setting often comes into conflict with the original text. But like the two songs at the top, the production manages to fuse a Shakespearean comedy of errors with a 2019 story about a black family living in the American South almost seamlessly. If you'd like to read more about Much Ado About Nothing at the Delacorte Theater, please visit thetheatertimes.com. Page three. From our friends at USITT, Portaides feature in their series of posts from designers whose productions were canceled or postponed due to the global COVID-19 pandemic. They're showcasing the work of Helen Garcia Alton. Helen is a second year graduate candidate at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and was the lighting designer for the school's production of A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Here is how Helen described her lighting design. This musical comedy is about Monty Discuth Navarro and how he finds out that he could be a lord if he kills the first eight people in line for it before him, which he does, spoilers, in various hysterical ways. My production is lit similarly to how one would light a dance piece because of the layers of scenic elements. I was very excited to use L747 on this piece because it looked like it was going to play beautifully as a top light on the costumes. At nearly 270 lights total, including practicals, it is the largest instrument count I've ever drafted. Be sure to visit USITT's Facebook page and other social media platforms to take a look at Helen's work. Continuing on, from projection lights and staging news, they have compiled an extensive list of new products that you would have seen from exhibitors at USITT's 2020 in Houston as well as other industry trade shows in the form of a 2020 virtual show report. If you visit USITT's Facebook page, you can read about all the new products in, their, in our industry by clicking on the PLSN link. That's at plsn.com, the 2020 virtual show report. Also, a small tidbit. In an interview from Limelight Wired as part of their Enlightened series, Tiffany Keys of Key Lighting Incorporated shares how she made the transition from an onstage actress to an accomplished lighting designer. Learn about how she made the transition. You can visit limelightwired.com. That's limelightwired.com. Also, if you've been one of the, the many people who's taken advantage of the News at Noon and Forum at Four series, we look forward to sharing more of their information as it gets released for next week. So be sure to tune in tomorrow for an update on what's going to be offered. Continuing on, a joint venture between the Education Commission of USITT and OISTAT, pre, pre, we now present the OISTAT Education Online Meeting, Theater Students Coping with COVID-19. This was presented by William Kenyon, Associate Professor of Penn State University. He writes, To all USITT students, my name is William Kenyon, and I am currently the chair of Oystedt's Education Commission. As you may know, if you are a member of USITT, you are also a member of Oystedt. We have been working actively to develop best practices in online theater production training and education and want to include you in the process. I am hosting two Zoom sessions next week and invite you to come and participate in the discussions with students from theater programs worldwide. Both sessions will cover the same agenda, 
but are being offered at different times to accommodate all time zones around the world. Topics to be discussed. What aspects of online learning were successful for you and what just didn't work? What barriers to success did you experience with online learning? Net, net access? Quiet place to work? Access to materials? Proper equipment? What topics would you like to study online and what topics do you want to wait on until they can be taught in person? Other issues that you want to address? We are trying to understand what your experience has been. Here's the info on the two sessions and a link to, for registration. It's free, but will help us plan better to form how many are attending. Of course, you can find all this information by visiting the Education Commission USITT Facebook page. Or you can visit oistat.org for more information. Of course, this link will probably be shared across many of the social media platforms, so keep an eye out for it. It could pop up on USITT's site, the USITT International, the OISTAT, international page or the OISTEP page or on any of the other social pages that deal and associate with theater and teaching. So please keep an eye out for it. And finally, from our friends at Playbill.com and written by Nathan Skithway, today we remember Tony winning golden girl B. Arthur on her 98th the stage and screen performer was born May 13th, 1922. Now, we know that May 13th marks what would have been the 98th birthday of Tony winner B. B. Arthur. In remembrance of Arthur, Playbill is taking a look back at her illustrious career on and off the stage. Arthur began her career performing in off-Broadway productions before creating roles in the legendary Mark Blitzstein's translation of Three Penny Opera and originating the role of Yenti, the original Broadway production of Fiddler on the Roof. In 1966, she appeared in Maine as Vera Charles, which won her the Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Musical. In 1971, Arthur made a guest appearance as the character Maud Finley in the sitcom All in the Family, which would lead to a spin-off series centered around the character. Maud ran for six seasons and earned Arthur an Emmy Award in 1977. After leaving the series in 1978, Arthur starred in a few television projects, including the notorious Star Wars Christmas special, before landing her iconic role as Dorothy's Bornack on The Golden Girls. The Golden Girls premiered in 1985 and ran until 1992, garnering numerous awards and nominations for Arthur and her co-stars, Betty White, Rue McClanahan, and Estelle Getty. Though Arthur won an Emmy for her performance on the series in 1988, she was nominated an additional eight times, making her the third most nominated leading actress in a comedy series in the history of the awards. Arthur continued to work on in stage and screen projects after leaving. The Golden Girls premiering her one-woman show, Be Arthur, on Broadway, Just Between Friends, on Broadway in 2002. She died in 2009 at the age of 86. If you want to see some of the work of Be Arthur, please visit playbill.com, or go on YouTube and look up old classic episodes of The Golden Girls and Maude and some of her other great work. Before I conclude today's podcast, I want to once again extend my gratitude to the members of our armed services, to our healthcare workers, our nurses and doctors, the first responders, the police, fire, and emergency service officers around the world. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please join me in continuing to support these women and men as they face this near-impossible task of saving lives in the face of such great adversity. Please support your local food bank and shelters. If possible, donate blood at one of your local Red Crosses. Be sure to check in on the elderly and support those who have special needs. Reach out to a friend and help not only make their day, but also improve your own. Please support small and local businesses as well. Be sure to continue to practice good hygiene, wearing of personal protective equipment, and social distancing. Every little bit makes a difference. I'd like to conclude with a quote from Coach John Wooden, Hall of Fame basketball coach and mentor to many. Success is a peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing you did your best to become the best you are capable of becoming. Success is never final. Failure is never fatal. It's courage that counts. My name is Richard Bryant, and I have been your host. It's May 14th, 2020. This has been the Corona Chronicles, Day 63. Take care, be well, and good night. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions on how to make this podcast better, please send them to archivett24 at yahoo.com. Again, that's archivett24 at yahoo.com.